Today is selected from Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, beginning with verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And now to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, or grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And now to verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of God. Thank you for that reading, Janice. That, you said, uh, she said, are there any big words in there? And I said, no, but I kind of lied, didn't I? Jephthah, that you did that very well. Yeah. In that famous chapter of the Bible, commonly called the faith chapter, we have the recitation of an ancient story which started clear back with Abraham when God called a people and God made promises and brought rescue to them, and the story of the many people throughout the centuries which had given shape to the story of Israel and then ultimately gave shape to the story of Jesus. This story that it takes generations to tell was important to be told there at that day. And it, there's a reason why I want you to, to uh, think about that story, even though we won't study each part of it. I just want you to get a feel for the way in which the story that involves followers of Jesus involves a story which began long before Jesus came on the earth. In fact, that is the story which the Bible basically tells where does this quote come from? 
I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. These are famous words from a well-known novel, which, of course, if it's a novel, nobody would know it. But since it's been turned into a blockbuster movie, chances are you do, and I'm going to give to you a huge hint. The man who said this was a hobbit. That kind of narrows it down, doesn't it? Yeah. It's from The Lord of the Rings. The man who said this was not Bilbo Baggins, was not Frodo Baggins. The man who said it was a man named Samwise Gamgee. Frodo's servant, really. The guy who behind the scenes just gives the encouragement and the help and the, the one without whom Frodo would never have succeeded in his journey. Sam said it in a conversation with Frodo just before they entered the tunnel of Mordor. In the trilogy, this conversation occurs near the end of the second book. Now, in the movie, I think it's placed at a little bit different point in the story. In any case, by the time Sam and Frodo have this conversation, they are much wiser than they were in the first few hours of their journey out of the Shire. You may recall that back then they were immature and ignorant, whistling on their way, having no idea of the immense and dangerous adventure that they were beginning with their friends, Mary and Pippin. Have you seen this movie? Or Okay, good. Very good. Read the books. But now, far along into the story, their eyes have been opened. They had come to realize that they were part of a story which had begun long before that they were born, and one in, whom, in, in which danger and the consequences of which were far greater than they had originally imagined. They'd already seen more death than they could hardly stomach, and they were almost certain their own adventure would be futile. And so here's Sam talking to Frodo. Gollum is nearby. Unknowingly to them, he's leading them into a trap where they will go into Shelob's lair where he hopes that they will be killed so he can steal back the ring. Sam has no idea how difficult the tale is beginning, but he stands there. They pause by the tunnel there, entering into Shelob's lair, and he says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. It's a rather haunting question, isn't it? What sort of story had they fallen into? For, matter, for that matter, what sort of tale, and this is the reason why I bring it up, what sort of tale have you and I fallen into? What is the tale that we are a part of? Is there an overarching tale that governs the universe, or is life merely a random result of mathematical probabilities? Are we merely a speck of dust in the shoebox of the universe? Is there a tale at all? And if there is, what kind of tale is it? This question dominates the thinking of scientists and philosophers, of religious people and spiritual seekers and thinking people of all ages. We live, we love, we die. Is there any meaning to it, any purpose to it? What sort of tale have we fallen into? Maybe Macbeth had it right in the famous words of that Shakespearean play. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Do you remember that? Was he right? Was Macbeth right? From a purely scientific point of view, Macbeth's conclusion seems virtually inescapable. After all, many scientists believe that the universe began with an accident, accident and will end up the same way. We can't help but wonder. If the universe is merely a random accident, who is to say that any of it, any of our lives, have any ultimate meaning? 
Is there any intrinsic morality if the whole thing began with a bang and will likely end with a whimper? <laughs> if thinking people ask these questions. Now, despite the speculation of scientists and philosophers, most people simply are not content to live in a story which means nothing. We want a tale that matters. We want a universe that means something, a life which matters. We want this story somehow to make sense. Is that just wishful thinking on our part? No, it is not wishful thinking. Not if we embrace the story of the world which we find here in the Bible. For as we began to discover last week, embedded in the Scriptures is a story which I believe best answers the longings and the desires buried deep within the human heart. We ask, why does the world exist? The Bible gives us an answer. Everyone asks, why is there such a strange mixture of beauty as well as horror in this universe? The Scriptures give us an answer to that question. We ask, what went wrong with the world? And the Scriptures provide a solution to that. How can it be fixed? And where in the world is this world headed? These are the ultimate questions of every human life, and the scriptural story gives to us its answers to that question. It's a story which is foundational to our lives, which ought to shape our, our, our lives, and which is, in fact, why we gather on Sunday mornings to be reminded of that story, because it is the story which ultimately matters. I'm trying over the course of these couple of weeks to give you a overall bird's eye view of this great and beautiful story, this wonderful tale which you fell into when you breathed your first, when the doctor spanked your bottom and you took a breath, right? The world was going on before, and it will long last, likely long, last long after, and it's not a simply a series of random accidents. There is a design and a purpose to this world in Christianity. The story of the Scriptures gives you God's understanding, the truth about how all that happens. Sadly, for many Christians, the Bible is a closed book. They don't know their story. And so they open up the Bible, and they have no idea because they don't understand the big story. As I said to you last week, if you were here, the Bible is essentially a play which comprises four acts. Last week, we looked at two of those. We skimmed over the last couple. So today, I want to take a look at that third one more carefully. What are those four acts? It's printed on the message notes inside of your program. You can follow along. And if you like, you can take notes as we go. The Bible is a story that involves four acts about creation. Number one, the beauty of creation. Number two, the brokenness of creation. Number three, the rescue of creation. And number four, the renewal of creation. Four words, beauty, broken, rescued, renewed. Beautiful creation, broken creation, rescued creation, renewed creation. When you read the Scripture, you want to fit it into that general framework. The beauty of creation is comprised in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. The brokenness of creation is described for in chapters 3 through chapter 11. We still have the memory of beauty, but it's been broken. And it was, we find the story of how brokenness came into the world in chapters 3 through 11. Beginning with chapter 12, we have the long story which comprises most of the rest of the Bible, which tells us about the rescue of creation. It is that story of rescue we're going to take a look at today. And in the same way that Act 1 
bleeds into Act 2 so that we have the memory of beauty despite our brokenness. Act 2 bleeds into Act 3, that we have the remnants of brokenness even while we're trying to embrace God's rescue. Do you see? Yes, we have seen the beauty and the brokenness of creation, and I printed those for you. Now, already, beauty and brokenness, and we see that this involved how we related to creation, how we related to one another, and how we relate to God. That when there was beautiful creation, there was harmony between us and God, harmony between us and one another, harmony between us and creation. But when brokenness and selfishness came in, our relationship with God was brought disharmony, and disharmony occurred between us and, and, and one another, and disharmony or disunity came between us and God. And so we have a distrust of God. We have self-centered relationships, and we have a godless culture which we've developed. Now, everyone more or less agrees, I think, generally about Acts 1 and 2. Everyone instinctively knows that the world is a good place, but that somewhere something has gone wrong. The question is, what is to be done about this situation? What is to be done about the fact that this world is beautiful but marred? How can it get fixed? This is where Act 3 comes in, in what we would call the Judeo-Christian tradition. It comprises Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Gospels of the New Testament, telling us how God responded to the brokenness of this world. The heart of the scriptural Judeo-Christian tradition is this, and the word is rescue. Rescue. The only way what is broken will get fixed is if something from outside comes in and rescues us. The only way that we will really bring back harmony between ourselves and God, ourselves and one another, ourselves and creation, is if there is rescue. So let's take a careful look then at Act 3, the rescue of creation. What we see in this long section of Scripture is this. The Bible teaches us that the brokenness of humanity is so deep that it cannot be healed by ourselves. Yes, there's a memory of beauty, but it's been broken. No amount of education, no amount of economic development, no amount of tolerance training will fix what is fundamentally wrong with us. We are broken beyond self-reparation. We need rescue. We desperately need rescue. So the key idea here under this point is this. The brokenness of creation is beyond self-repair. Rescue is the only way to destroy, to restore our relationship with God, with one another, and with creation. Why don't you see, first of all, under this point, that rescue is necessary. Rescue is necessary. When I say to you that we need a rescue from outside ourselves, most of us do not like that news. In fact, instinctively, we do not like it. We want to fix what's wrong, don't you, guys? If something's wrong, I want to fix it. And everything in our human heart says, I can fix this thing. I can do it. We can do it. Let us build a city. Let us build technology. Let us elevate reason. Let us educate the masses. Let us, be, let us do away with materialism. Let us make it work. We will create a better world together, you see. Let us 
affirm the divine spark that's in the universe and let us get into, let us, let us, let us. Bible says, no, it does not work that way. That is the challenge of the Judeo-Christian tradition. We want to believe that if we can only find the right formula, the right recipe, we can fix what ails not only humanity, but ourselves, inside of ourselves. I will become a better person. I will be a better husband. I will work harder. I will stop doing those things. We've got it all figured out, but what do we find out to be true? Culturally, it goes negatively. Personally, it does not go so well. So that leads us to two alternative conclusions. One is we either become rather successful at what we're trying to do, in which, in, in which case we become prideful, like we're better than those guys who can't handle their problems, who can't stay in their marriages, who can't uh, pay their bills. You see, we get prideful, and that just creates a negative. Or more commonly, we become despondent. We feel underneath all that. It will never get better. We feel despair. We feel we can fix what ails us, and this is where science and even often religion steps in. We think if only we can erase superstition, science might say, then we can approach human life rationally. One by one, the world's problems can be fixed. But if we are honest, we will admit that while science and technology have solved many of the world's problems, it has also created a whole host of other ones. A hundred years ago, we could not destroy the world if we wanted to. Today we can, you see? And technology you have to thank for that, right? So science has brought blessings, but it has brought difficulties. Science tied with the problems within human hearts and human culture creates, you know, pollution, creates inequity between peoples. You see, after all, in addition to the many medical and technological advances, science has also given us many ways to destroy ourselves and the planet. Despite the advances of recent centuries, the past century is generally considered to be the deadliest in the history of the world. We're not fixing this thing on our own. Well, where does religion come in? Often religion comes in just as well. We say, well, we need to change behavior. This is how we can overcome what is wrong with the world. So it is that Buddhism espouses the eightfold path. Islam promotes the five pillars. Other quasi-Eastern religions suggest various paths towards enlightenment or self-actualization. We can do it if we just get the right thing going. In fact, if we're really honest, we will admit that many Christian religious systems themselves devolve into various symptoms, systems of self-improvement. Practice the Ten Commandments. Obey the golden rule. Do this, and you will fix what's wrong, and everything will be okay. But as well-meaning as these might be, they do not address the fundamental human problem that the Scripture says is there. We need rescue, a solution outside of ourselves. At the heart of our tradition is a basic conviction. Rescue is what we need, and thank God, rescue is what God has provided. God has come in to rescue us out of this condition. Yeah. Act 3, you see, is divided into a few parts. It's divided into the parts of Israel's view and the resurrection as it related to Jesus. We'll look at these two parts in, in the time. As we do, we will see two important facts about rescue. You can jot them down. And what we want to see is that not only is rescue necessary, but number two, rescue is provided by God.
Rescue is provided by God. And then thirdly, rescue is received by faith. By faith. All these things in the Hall of Fame were mentioned. So let's talk then about this Act 3, the rescue of creation. I said there were two parts, and the first part we might call this Israel and the Old Covenant. This is a part which starts in Genesis chapter 12. And if you recall, we saw that Genesis chapter 3 through 11 shows how all of the world had become negative towards God. And then we see in the midst of that that God goes to a pagan man in the middle of a land named Ur. His name was Abram. In Genesis, and if you have your Bibles and want to follow along on some of these texts, you're welcome to. The Hebrews text I simply use as a way of helping us to see the overall picture, but it does say there as well. In Hebrews chapter 1, 12, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, God, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so in our text for the day in Romans, excuse me, Hebrews 11, 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Yes, we see that God, first of all, Abraham and the covenant. You can jot this down. Abraham was childless. God called him. Abraham responded in faith. God blessed Abraham. You see? That's what that story is telling, that God came into this world in prehistoric times, virtually some 4,000 years ago, and he found a man named Abram, and he said, I'm going to begin a rescue operation through you that will bless not only your family, he was childless at the time, but all families of the earth. And so Abraham followed, and so the book of Genesis tells us how Abraham went. And then later in Genesis 15, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and he said to him that he would provide for him a son. And so God provided him a son miraculously when he was 90 years old, well beyond the period of, or 99 years old, rather, and his wife was 90 years old, and well beyond the age of childbearing. We see that the Israelite people looked back to God having brought rescue to them through the one man, Abraham, to whom was born Isaac, to whom was born Jacob, to whom were born the 12 tribe, the 12 sons, you know, Reuben and Issachar and Simeon and Judah and Dan and Ish, uh, uh, well, I don't know all 12, but there are a lot of them, you know, ending up with Benjamin, and that God had brought them and called them. You see, what began to happen was not that Abraham began to seek after God, but that God began to seek after Abraham. He said, come here, Abraham. And Abraham had to look beyond the futile nature of his condition that they had no children, which is a tough thing in any life, but especially in those days. And the Bible says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as 
righteousness. That Abraham responded in faith. It wasn't a perfect path. He made mistakes along the way, a lot of them, as we all do. But God had called him. God had brought rescue. Rescue was provided by God. Abraham, of course, you see, needed rescue. He had no children. God, rescue was, provi- was promised to him if he would obey, and Abraham obeyed God. You see, that's how he received it, by faith. Well, as the story continues, we find that Israel has grown to be a great nation in Egypt, which had been providing safety and salvation to Israel, now became its source of slavery. And they were now enslaved in the land of Egypt, and they were stuck, and it was not going to get better. And so we see that in the book of Exodus, God calls another man. His name was Moses. And Moses became the one through whom the people of Israel would what? Get rescued, get rescued out of Egypt and brought into the promised land. So what we want to see is that Israel and the covenant, secondly, Israel was enslaved. God rescued them. God gave them his law, designed to restore harmony with God and with one another and with creation. But Israel broke God's law and suffered exile as a result. You see, God brought them, and so we see in Exodus that Moses goes back, and Moses says, oh, there's so much in these stories, so much. I hope you read them someday. The book of Genesis and the book of Exodus are not boring books. And don't just think about all the people who die. Think about the story that's being told, a story of beauty and brokenness and rescue initiated through Abraham and then through Moses. And so Moses takes them out of Egypt and leads them to say that I am the Lord over all the earth. God wanted not just for Israel to know, but for Egypt to know as well that God was in charge, that God was the one who would rescue his people. And he brought them up to a mountain on Sinai, and there he gave to them his covenant where he established his relationship with them. He said, I've already rescued you. Now I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. Will you agree to this covenant? And they said, yes, all that the Lord commands, we will do. We see the same thing was true for them. They were hopelessly enslaved in Egypt. They were never going to get out unless God brought rescue, and God did. God brought Moses, and through Moses, these great miraculous signs were done. So they stood before a river, and God opened up the river and made a way for them to walk through on the other side. And so this very early uh, song of Israel, of of actually uh, Moses' sister, Miriam, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. They set it on the other side of the Red Sea as they saw how God that had brought them to a place of impossibility only to show his power so that he could be praised for what he had done. Their freedom was not something they did themselves, but God granted to them, and they simply needed to walk across in faith, on the path God had given. I'm a little excited about this, aren't I? It's so true. Yeah. God brought them out of Egypt. God gave them a covenant. They responded in faith. You see, rescue was necessary. It was God that brought them out. 
Rescue was provided. God provided that for them. They responded in faith to God's covenant. And in many ways, this covenant was designed to restore all the relationships which had been broken by the brokenness of creation. Humans left to their own devices will destroy the world, won't they? God said, take care of this world. And he gave them many rules in the book of Exodus about how they were to take care of this world. Humans left to their own devices will take advantage of people and, and pile themselves on top of other people. God says, no, no, you shall not take your, uh, the wife of another man. You shall not covet another man's things. You shall not uh, dishonor your parents. These are relational commands designed to promote harmony. Left our own devices, we give a, well, let's just say it's a negative sign to God saying, let me be in charge of my life. And God says on that, on that mountain, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not, I am the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. Why? Because we are the image of God. Don't make another one. We're meant to reflect God's image. You shall, uh, you shall not take my name in vain. You manipulate me for your purposes. See, this law was designed to promote humanity and uh, harmony and unity within the community. But of course, as you know, there were many broken promises all the way through their history. They had a hard time. It was clear refuge was needed on an even deeper level. And so we see part two of Act 3, that ultimately, when the time was fully come, Galatians tells us, Jesus was born to a woman. Jesus came into the earth, and he became the ultimate faithful Israelite. He became the one through whom the promises of God will be fulfilled, also the one to whom the judgment of God would be given. That's what Jesus did. And it wasn't Jesus, this guy over here. It was God himself judging God for your sin. And on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered his disciples together in Matthew 26 and verse 27. And it says, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink it, all of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was the ultimate faithful Israelite. He fulfilled the law and he gave his life for faithless Israel. Jesus fulfilled the law and through his death suffered its consequences to establish a new covenant between us and God. Yes, Rescue comes, but, and it's important to know this, it always comes at great cost. It comes to us because of God's grace, but it comes at great cost. Your salvation is free, but it was not cheap. We don't follow a God who just merely wipes the slate clean and says, it's all right. No, we follow a God who judges evil, but who judges it in his own son, his own self. Jesus provides rescue for us, and he becomes the one who sums up all of Israel in his own death. He is the ultimate final uh, 
faithful Israelite, the true vine instead of all of the false vines which had developed, the true temple to replace the temple which had become uh, abused, the true Sabbath so that no longer was there a Sabbath needed. He was our rest. He was the one in whom God dwelt and through whom God gave life. He came to bring us rescue. So when you read Genesis 12 all the way through the Gospels, you find ultimately a story of rescue. A story of a God who says, you know, this problem is too big for you to fix. If you're man enough to admit how much you need what I can offer, you can receive it. You know, I began by saying rescue is necessary. Rescue is provided. Rescue is received. Some of you have experienced, I'm sure, or know something about the 12 steps of AA. What are the first three steps of AA? The first one, we admitted we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. That means I admitted that rescue was necessary. That is the hardest step for any of us who've dealt with addictive kinds of behaviors, to admit that we can't fix what's wrong with us. It's the hardest step, not just for substance abuse and other kinds of issues, but also in our own lives. We have to admit rescue is necessary. It is hard to come to that point. Many people never do. What is the second of the three laws? came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. What is that? Came to believe that there was a rescue offered to me. I'm stuck. God comes to bring me out of that. That's the second step, not only for uh, substance abuse and etc., but in order to respond to what God has offered. We've got to admit that we need rescue. We've got to believe that rescue has been provided, but we're not there yet, are we? The third step, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. What does that mean? Respond in faith to the provision God provided. Yes, it's true for substance abuse issues, but it's true for every human condition because the story of how God fixes what is wrong with the world is a story of rescue. We've got to admit we need rescue. We've got to believe rescue's been provided. We've got to commit our lives responding to the rescue that God has given to us. And how do we do that? We do that by the words of that great chapter, which Janice read for us earlier by faith. Faith. Now, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, right? So I want to invite you, before we consider Act 4, to respond to Act 3. Can you say this story about the Bible is the true story? This is the tale, the true tale, into which we have fallen We were born into a world which is made beautiful, but which has been badly broken. We see it out there. We feel it in here. But thank God, we live in a world where rescue has been provided. And the whole story of what God has been doing from that day until the death of Jesus Christ was to provide freedom for captives 
whether it's Abraham who had no children, Israel who was enslaved in Egypt, or all people who are under the judgment of God because of their disobedience, God provides rescue. I invite you, respond to that rescue today. Let's pray as we close in prayer. Lord Jesus, oh, it's really hard to admit that we need rescue. All of us struggle to one degree or another with that. And yet it's, it's the human condition. Thank you that you have provided rescue for us. Help us to admit that we need it. Help us to believe you had offered it. Help us to respond and to make a decision to turn our lives over to you. And Father, I would pray, especially for those of us who may never really understood this story, I want to invite you to join me in saying that prayer to the Lord in your heart. Say to the Lord, Lord, I admit that I need you. I believe that you died to rescue me. I'm making a decision to follow you. Father, bring freedom and hope and joy into the brokenness of our lives by that story of rescue. In Jesus' name I pray. 